was a young pastor, a member of our presbytery left his wife, went off with another woman. He rejected all of our pleading to break it off, and so he was formally excommunicated by the presbytery acting in the name of Jesus Christ. We prayed for him that day, but denied him permission to participate in the Lord's Supper, stripped him of his pastoral responsibilities and credentials, and regarded him as no longer a member of the Presbyterian Church in America, thereby putting him outside the umbrella of grace that Jesus Christ is for his people, the church, the body of whom he is the head. Five years later, though, the same man stood before our presbytery again. This time he was profoundly chastened and humbled as he told us with many tears how he had come to see that he had ruined two families, his own and the family of the woman that he went off with. He sought our forgiveness even as he had sought the forgiveness of the Lord, and we were most glad to give it to him, to embrace him again as a brother, to assure him of our love for him and God's love for him, and to thank the Lord for his restoration. It was a reminder to all of us who were there that day that each of us walks on the thin ice of our fallen and very vulnerable humanness. It was truly a day of glory for our presbytery. This dear brother in Christ went on to serve the Lord's people faithfully for many years as a serious lay leader in a vibrant congregation. Now that's just the outcome that the Apostle Paul hopes for in ancient Greece in the city of Corinth where he is chastening the congregation for tolerating serious sin in their congregation, in the church. He's giving them instructions to do the same radical thing, to exercise discipline and remove a man from the fellowship of the church. And of course, we learned it from Paul himself. Turn, if you will, to the insert in your bulletin, to the opening verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I don't know about you, but I don't care about man-made rules. You shouldn't either. But what if these are God's rules? The God who made us, the God who keeps our hearts beating, even in this moment, the God who comes after us in our stubbornness. If these are his rules, we need to pay attention. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, his stepmother, most students of Paul think. And you, Corinthians, are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body... I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled, 
in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Paraphrasing that, we might say, for the unraveling of his defiant life in order to humble him, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. There are two themes in 1 Corinthians 5, two questions that it answers, and they're very wonderfully, I think, interwoven. The first is, how are Christians supposed to love those inside the church who are seriously defying God in their behavior? And then the second question is, how are Christians supposed to love those outside the church who are seriously defying God in their behavior? You see, God has always been concerned to draw a line between his people and the people of the world. In another place in the New Testament, it's put like this. We know that we, we believers in Jesus, are of God, but the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So this man is removed from among those who are of God, the church protected by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and his reconciling us to God, this man is then put out of the fellowship of the church and goes into the world that lies in the power of the evil one. This division of humanity is very strikingly taught here as well in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. That's the first passage on your insert. Now we... We who have cast ourselves on this man Jesus, in other words, have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. Those are the two spirits that exist, the spirit of God and the spirit of the world, whatever the particulars of the spirit of the world look like, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Again, humanity is divided in two. And we who have the Spirit of God understand these things only because the Spirit has shown them to us and only because he teaches us. The natural person, on the other hand, verse 14, the one who has not bowed the knee before Christ does not have the Spirit. He does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we, that is we believers, have the mind of Christ. Just a few verses earlier there in chapter 2, Paul had spoken of a hidden wisdom. That was the core of his message. What does he mean by that, a hidden wisdom? Well, he's claiming that the core truth of the Christian message is not obvious to the average onlooker. What Paul refers to here in verse 14 as the natural person, because the message is so counter to the rules by which the world plays, where the strong survive and those who assert themselves win. But here, you win 
a security you will never lose, power, virtue, position and status, never-ending pleasure, and in the end, ultimate wealth, and freedom from death itself, and most important of all, you are given as a free gift an intimate relationship with the living God. It's unbelievable what you get, but you win all that only by submitting to a great scandal. You win all of that only by despairing of your own goodness and effort and relying alone on the tender love and the patient passivity of a horribly mistreated and tortured man who submitted quietly to death on a Roman cross. That is exactly what is not self-evident to the man or the woman of the street. God has to reveal that to the children of Adam because our hearts are hard. And we live supremely by what we can see and touch and by confidence in ourselves, not in childlike trust in the God of heaven and earth. Well, when you come to God, and he is the one even who draws us. But when you come despairing of your own goodness, God does something. He constitutes you holy by the power of a blood sacrifice, a life offered up to seal a covenant of love. Under the old covenant, of course, it was the blood of a sheep or a goat or a bull. But that only pointed forward to the new covenant when the blood of God's own son would be spilled. The only sacrificed life that could ever truly cover our guilt. Christ's life for my life. That's the heart of Christianity right there. And the only way that it can be appropriated personally is by childlike faith, simple trust that only Jesus can make us acceptable to God. And you see, it's because of what God has done in constituting us holy in his eyes if our trust is in Jesus, reckoning us to be without sin or stain. It's because he constitutes us holy that God expects us then to live holy, to aim at being like him. And of course to rely on him to do it in us. We just heard that in First Peter. As obedient children, you Christians, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, and Peter appeals to Leviticus, where God says, you, my people, shall be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Well, Paul goes on. Look at verse 11 of chapter 5. I'm writing to you now, 
not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. You see, this is what holiness looks like. Not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of these things, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders, that is, unbelievers? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Paul speaks in a very curt way here because the Corinthians are not at all taking seriously God's call to be holy. Not long ago, there was an article written about John Updike, the American novelist and poet. He was the winner of two Pulitzer Prizes, scores of awards. He died in 2009, but he wrote famously about what one writer has called the sexual infidelities of middle-class America. People called Updike the poet laureate of modern adultery. In one of his more famous books, it's the story of a band of spouse-trading friends, one of whom greets her lover with the legendary words, welcome to the post-pill paradise. The writer of this article wrote about Updike that his two favorite themes were theology and adultery. And that in his writings, religion, quote, seems to overpower everything even sex. Many of you know the Easter poem that John Updike wrote, Seven Stanzas at Easter. It's a remarkable poem. It's a poem affirming the orthodox Christian view that Christ rose with a body that was transformed. Updike in this interview said that he wrote his novels and his poems as an act of love for God. But then he said this about God the God who is the God of the living, not the God who chastises life and forbids and says no. In other words, what Updike was doing was picking and choosing which parts of the Christian faith he wanted and which he didn't winding up with what the article, the writer of the article called a strange sort of Christianity where you can choose God's comfort but then screen out his warnings, where you can keep the good news, the gospel of forgiveness, but put on the back shelf the commandments of God that he asks you to obey. The writer of the article said it well, that this distorted brand of Christianity gives grace without repentance and the love of God without the holiness of God. We said two weeks ago that 1 Corinthians 5 is a hugely important passage that underscores 
both how strange authentic Christianity seems to modern people and to be truly authentic Christianity, it has to have a willingness to to discipline. That has to be built into it. But we also said that this passage underscores how normal the exercise of discipline actually is in the world, everywhere, given what human beings are. Very often people around us bristle when they hear that a church has disciplined one of its members. In 1985, there was a trial, and it took place right in this church. Charges were brought against one of our pastors for believing and teaching things that were contrary to the doctrinal standards of our church, and the presbytery decided to go to trial. It was on the front page of the Post-Dispatch heresy trial in St. Louis. And people were scandalized by that. Now, many of us believe that the charges were in error. Eventually, the man was vindicated. But in some quarters, it were like vultures descending on the PCA for this kind of thing. The religion editor of Time magazine was here for that weekend trial as well. It seems so strange to people around us that a church would discipline someone for what they believed or for what they are doing morally. What does that sound like? It sounds like brain control, like the way cult leaders micromanage every part of the life of their followers so as to maintain a kind of absolute control over them. Everybody loves Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor who stood up to the Nazis in Germany before and during World War II. But Bonhoeffer said this, reproof, that is correction, challenge, rebuke, reproof is unavoidable. God's word demands it when a brother falls into open sin. The practice of discipline in the congregation begins in the smallest circles where defection from God's word in doctrine or in life imperils the family fellowship and with it the whole congregation. The word of admonition and rebuke must be ventured. And then he said this, Nothing can be more cruel than the tenderness that consigns another to his sin. Nothing can be more compassionate than the severe rebuke that calls a brother back from the path of sin. It is a ministry of mercy, an ultimate offer of genuine fellowship when we allow nothing but God's word to stand between us both judging us and comforting us. But as we pointed out in the first sermon on these instructions from Paul, a whole variety of disciplinary actions are so frequently carried out in the wider society. And people realize that this kind of discipline is actually helpful for the common good. It's very important for us to get this right. It is not that modern secular people don't believe that authority and discipline are important. They do. 
They believe it's important in government. They believe it's important in business, in cultural institutions, in organized sports, in families, in schools. They just mistrust it profoundly when the church tries to do it, unless it's for things like child abuse. I already mentioned a couple weeks ago that the committee in charge excommunicated, if you will, the Russian track and field team from the Rio Olympics for doping. Some years ago, there was a scandal in connection with the Walter Reed Army Medical Center in Washington, D.C., for what appears to have been its horrible treatment of veterans there. And the major general, who was the commander of the hospital, was promptly relieved by the Secretary of Defense for his carelessness. Discipline happens all the time around us. It's just that people raise their eyebrows when the church does it. Now, it is true, friends, that the church sometimes royally screws up church discipline, and people are hurt when it gets exercised, and we need to own that. But discipline is just part of what keeps people together, especially in a fallen world. So here's a suggestion for you. The next time maybe you are with a non-Christian who thinks that the church is just full of hypocrisy because it disciplines people for this and that, ask them some questions. Put a couple of questions to them to try to get them to see that authority and discipline are very much at work in the wider human community. Put it to them. Why is discipline tolerated in so many circles except the church? And doesn't a group, in fact, have the right to set the standards by which one becomes and stays a member? I'll just commend a book to you, and then we're going to move on. It was published in 2010, but it caught my attention. The title, it's called Up With Authority. It was written by an Anglican pastor why we need authority to flourish as human beings. A very, very good word for the 21st century. Well, the second question in 1 Corinthians 5 that is posed and answered is how are Christians supposed to love those outside the church who are seriously defying God in their behavior? And Paul sets out one very basic and important principle And that is from them, do not do what you do toward the Christian in your midst who is defying the law of God. Don't cut yourself off from unbelievers who are disobeying God and defying him. They may be doing it with their bodies. They may be doing it with their money, their words. They may be doing it with alcohol, but do not cut them off. Verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 5. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, drunkard or swindler not even to eat with such a one. 
For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those who are outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Now the point, of course, is not that there is no judgment for the behavior of unbelievers. Paul's point is that it is in the hand of God directly. That judgment will come from him. We are not his instruments of judgment for it, as we are to be for those who profess to be Christians. So this discipline in the church that can go all the way to excluding professing Christians, it is an act of love, but it is not to be practiced toward unbelievers. We are not to refuse to associate with them. Love toward defiant unbelievers, friends, looks different than our love toward defiant believers. Bill Rogers, back there, became a Christian in college at the University of Missouri in Rolla. I don't know if Larry Chambers is here, but Bill became a Christian first before Larry found the Lord. And Bill's Christian friends, Larry and Bill were friends, but Bill's Christian friends told Bill to stop spending time with Larry because Larry wasn't a Christian. Not so, says the Apostle Paul. It's not simply that we are to be passive and not just cut off relationships with unbelieving friends or family members, neighbors, or classmates. We are called actively to seek to be winsome toward them with the gospel of the kingdom and its scandalous cross. Just a few chapters further into Paul's letter here, you'll find this, and we will deal with it more fully when we come to it. It's in chapter 9, but listen to what Paul says. For though I am free from all people, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, Though not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. But I did it that I might win those who are outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. We are not only called as the church made holy by the death of Christ, not to refuse to associate with unbelievers who are indeed unholy by the definition in the word of God. We are called to more. We are called to love them. We are called to build bridges toward them, human bridges to make more credible, more winsome the good news that God is real and that Christ has conquered everything that will one day ruin them. Somebody just gave me a new book that's out, 2016. It's called The Faith of Christopher Hitchens. Many of you know that Christopher Hitchens, until his death in 2011, was one of the most strident and angry of the so-called new atheists. But something happened, and this book is about that. He developed a friendship 
with a serious Christian, a man by the name of Larry Taunton. Hitchens died eventually of cancer of the esophagus, but he and Larry Taunton took two very extended cross-country road trips together, talking, arguing, debating. They had become friends. And on one occasion, while they were on one of these road trips, Hitchens' wife, Carol, called Larry's cell phone because apparently Christopher Hitchens often didn't answer his cell phone, but she wanted to find out how her husband was holding up, being as sick as he was. And Carol Hitchens said in that phone conversation to Larry Taunton, the Christian traveling with her profoundly atheist husband, she said to him, I always feel better, Larry, knowing that he is with you. Thank you for taking such good care of him. That's what we're called to as believers. Those who stand outside that umbrella of holiness. Friends, how many non-Christian friends do you have? How many non-Christian people are you not simply tolerating, not simply saying hello to, but doing what the Apostle Paul admonishes us to do by way of his example, becoming all things to all people, not just to be a chameleon, to change whatever we believe in the presence of someone, but finding that thing or those things in their life which can be indeed a bridge. How many non-Christians are you loving well enough to be working at building those bridges? Christianity is pro-person, as someone recently put it. And that means that as believers we live by the law of love. May God himself grant that we would have the insight by the Holy Spirit to discern when love is to be sharp like a scalpel in order to heal the wound in a fellow believer. And when, on the other hand, Our love is to be full of patience toward unbelievers, even as God himself has been patient with us. Amen. Let's pray for a moment. (laughs) Oh, Father, we bow low. We thank you for your word. These things are beyond us. This requires such discernment, such humility, such tremendous spiritual power to live out these principles with courage and carefulness at the same time. But thanks be to God, we have the mind of Christ. Lord, teach us to find it. Teach us to lay hold of it, to understand it more deeply than we do. Teach us to manifest it more fully than it is in this congregation that we might grow and be made more mature by being challenged by one another and that those around us might see our patience, our care for them, 
or attempts to build bridges toward them, and that by that and through that, O Lord, they might indeed be drawn to you. Hear us, we pray now, even as we come to feast on you, dear Jesus.